right, welcome back to the Talking Hedge. I'm Josh Kincaid, Capital Markets Analyst and host of your Cannabis Business Podcast. My guest today, Mark Sims, CEO of Riv Capital. Mark, thanks again for being back on the Talking Hedge. Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Uh, so Riv Capital, you guys are an investment acquisition company specializing in the cannabis uh, industry. Um, you were on the podcast before, so just kind of jumping off the last conversation we have about Riv Capital previously announcing that you guys entered a definitive agreement with the Hawthorne Collective. That's a cannabis focused subsidiary of Scott's Miracle Grow. That's kind of where you came from. You got some experience out there. So I am curious about uh, where you think the home grow segment is at. If you've got an opinion about that, where you think the projections are for home grow right now? Um. Yeah, I haven't been as close to it recently. I know, you know, the Hawthorne, they, they finished their fiscal year back in October, uh, definitely had a, a challenging year, I think, uh, which is a reflection of so much, um, you know, kind of biomass out on the on the market. Uh, and so I think, you know, the home growers, uh, you know, both I'll call them the, the true hobbyists, the folks that uh, you know, just grow for themselves, maybe a couple friends. Um, I think that continues to be... Uh, uh, a strong segment. Again, it's small scale. The, I'll call them the, uh, the traditional growers, right? So the quote unquote hobbyists that, that maybe grow for uh, themselves as well as for fun and profit. Um, I think that's the piece that's gotten the most uh, impacted by this kind of oversupply situation that we're in. Uh, so I think a lot of those folks are um, probably on the sidelines, not, not making a lot of purchases to expand what they're doing and or, you know, have maybe kind of folded up their tent um, just given kind of the state of the markets. Mm -hmm. uh, so Hawthorne Collective, they gave uh, or they allowed $150 million for investment. I'm curious how um, did how Riv has invested that money? Yeah. So, so again, you know, so Riv themselves had a, a pile of capital uh, about 18 months ago, um, you know, Riv and, and Scott's Miracle Grow, they had been, you know, talked previously um, about a put potential different uh, ways they could work together. But there was kind of high alignment on, on a strategy to enter the U.S. Uh, and have a brand focused strategy. So Scott's provided one hundred and fifty million dollars in uh, through a, a convertible note uh, instrument um, to the uh, the rib capital team uh, and then that was going to be used in combination with the other uh, capital that they had to um, execute a, a transaction in the US and so that's what really kind of was a precursor to the etain uh, acquisition in New York um, and, and so you know the not to get too much in the weeds but the unique thing is you know the Hawthorne uh, funds were, were quote unquote restricted. Uh, so they couldn't be used for like OPEX or CAPEX of a, a plant touching company. Um, but to actually buy the shares or buy out the owners of a plant touching company, that was, uh, an allowable use for the, for the cash. And so really, you know, the majority of their cash all went to fund the, the ETAIN transaction in New York. Gotcha. When you guys are deciding and looking at acquiring cannabis companies, what is kind of that methodology? What, what kind of, what do you guys go through? Yeah. I mean, you know, so again, kind of the, what we're looking for in kind of, you know, what are the target states, if you will, unfortunately we got to go state by state, as you know. Um, and so it's really from our perspective, it was kind of 
you know, a couple criteria. One was a large state. So, you know, go to where the people are, which, which is kind of a, a no brainer, limited license. So uh, again, a situation where you're, you know, potentially going to have an opportunity to um, compete and win uh, in a somewhat limited licensed environment. Um, and then kind of another piece would be the, you know, what is this, what is the cultural significance of that particular locale, right? So when we think about New York, why that was so attractive is obviously it's large, it's limited license and, you know, kind of the, the high focus on social equity, I think is, is going to be really good long-term for, for the, the state industry. Um, but it also has, you know, it, it has a huge both national and global influence when you think about, you know, how many trends, how many brands, how many companies kind of get their foothold and, and kind of take root in New York. And then they use that as the place to kind of grow from uh, within the Northeast, within the country, and then globally given, you know, there's 20, 20 plus million um, uh, New Yorkers, but there's also 150 million visitors that come to the state every year. Yeah, definitely see that in the fashion industry for sure. Um, but as you're looking at these companies, valuations are a little bit crazy right now. Multiples always kind of have been right now when, if, or when you're, you're still looking to expand or acquire, are these yeah. valuations at this point, mark to market, are they crashing too fast to determine like where are they at? Yeah. So it, it's a couple of different things. One is, uh, I, I think if it's a, um, a private company that you're looking to maybe deploy some growth capital into, I think you, you need to look at like where the current. Uh, market is trading. So, you know, what are the revenue multiples? What are the EBITDA multiples? Uh, and those, to your point, kind of vary, vary day to day, week to week. I think as it relates to, and as we look at potential opportunities uh, for combinations, uh, and, you know, as I've kind of stated previously publicly, that's definitely something that uh, RIV is looking at. We obviously have a, a great asset in New York. Um, we have, you know, over a hundred million dollars in, in, in capital that we can, uh, deploy. Uh, and, and so I think that's, uh, you know, makes us an in, interesting and attractive partner for folks that aren't in New York and maybe need growth capital. Um, I think that's really a situation where, you know, if it's a, either it's a public or a, a private, I think part of the challenge is how do you stack up? like what are the assets that people are bringing to the table? I think it's harder to do on, you know, looking at the current share price and or looking at, you know, kind of current multiples. I think it's really looking at what are the assets you're bringing to the table and what's kind of the relative split of the value of those assets um, and, and liabilities, right? People bring, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of debt financed uh, companies out there on the private side. I think where that becomes a challenge is, you know, um, you know, the, the private folks don't have to, you know, look every day to see kind of, you know, where, where the stock is trading and, and kind of how the industry is is valuing themselves as well as, you know, all the all the other neighbors, if you will. And so sometimes there's a tendency they're like, well, I'm still beautiful and, and you're ugly. Um, and I think, you know, again, getting past that to say, well, OK, you know, if you were, you know, in a public market situation, how would you trade? And so I think that's a similar discussion to look at, again, what assets are, you know, both parties bringing to the table, and then what is the relative value of those assets as you start to think about what a combination um, could could entail. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, so I would say the broader, no, I was just going to say that I think the broader thing that, that kind of like underpins all those things, which may be obvious, is like, 
does this make strategic sense, right? So when we think about, you know, what I just mentioned at the top in terms of large limited license states with, you know, high cultural significance, um, you know, those are the things that we look at in, in partners is are people bringing those types of footprints that uh, would be interesting, or maybe they have uh, brands that are really interesting that we could deploy uh, in New York and we think could, you know, kind of grow nationally, or maybe they have unique IP um, and or unique know-how that could be interesting to accelerate either what we're doing in New York or becomes a, a, a great uh, asset that uh, could be used for, you know, future uh, combinations. Well, so let's let's dive into New York then. Uh, December 15th, just recently in 2022, you guys completed the final closing of that previously announced transaction with Etain. That's four dispensaries, a cultivation and pr production facility that uh, went for approximately $42 million in cash and then another $5.2 million shares in RIV capital. Uh, that's approximately 16% of outstanding RIV shares going to the former owners of Etain, which seems like a lot, mm -hmm. especially when you compound inflation or the... the um, Margin margin declines. You have um, retail price compression. How has Riv Capital's shareholders responded to the Tain deal so far? Yeah, I mean it, it's it's somewhat hard to um, kind of parse out. I mean, I, I guess I would say one obvious thing, and, and again, that's public, is uh, you know one of our shareholders. Um, uh, actually sued us, uh, didn't like the transaction. That was last, uh, last April or May. I can't remember exactly when the lawsuit came across. Uh, and that was when we announced, announced the deal and, and completed the first closing. So that individual wasn't happy. I think other folks that we've talked to, other shareholders that we've talked to, uh, specifically large uh, block shareholders, um, I think they weren't, uh, you know, in hindsight, they're not happy with kind of the price paid. Uh, given the kind of both the collapse in both the kind of the broader uh, equity markets uh, as well as the, the risk markets uh, in, in cannabis. And, and so I think, um, you know, we, we, we've taken that feedback and it, obviously you'd always like to, uh, to pay less for something, but I think it doesn't kind of take us off, uh, you know, kind of being bullish about the opportunity we see in New York Um you know, there, there are challenges there with the way that the regulators are, are uh, you know, kind of rolling out the regs and, and kind of the challenges or the, the speed with which they're, they're moving. Um, but we're working both kind of publicly as well as behind the scenes to try to um, offer up our assistance and, and our opinions on, on how we think we can make New York uh, really kind of the shining example of, of kind of the, the most robust industry uh, or state-based industry in the uh, in the country. Mm -hmm. That shareholder dispute you mentioned was with uh, JW Asset Management. They were one of the larger shareholders of Riv Capital, controlling about Correct. twenty percent. Um, they requisitioned a special meeting of shareholders for the purpose of replacing five of the seven directors. They said that the board at the time and management at the time failed to create value. I'm looking at Riv stock as both Riv and CNPOF on the OTC markets, and both happen to be down approximately 84% in the last 12 months. So with New York finally coming on board, what's your response to those skeptical investors looking at both Riv and CNPOF stock price? Yeah, no, I, again, I think it's, um, we, we definitely have, have uh, kind of placed a bet in New York. And, and again, I think for the reasons that I've mentioned elsewhere, or previously, I think it's a great opportunity. Um, you know, 
conservative estimates of the the current market in New York is five billion. Uh, again, all that it's is illicit, and so really the, the the work to be done there is for us to expand cultivation, which is what we're doing. Um, work with the regulators to get into the supply side as soon as possible, as well as on the retail side, um, and really start to steal market share from from that uh, illicit market. Right, that's the similar kind of uh, task at hand in any state once they flip to uh, recreational is you, you obviously have a, a robust um, illicit market and New York is, is has a very, you know, deeply rooted illicit market. Um, I think the regulators are going to do their part and, and they've told us that they, we should expect to see some uh, increased enforcement over the next couple months. Uh, but really, it's going to be up to us as well as, you know, all the people that are operating in New York on the legal side of the market that we need to compete and win with the consumers, because ultimately, the, that consumer needs to choose to walk past kind of that, um, that bodega that's selling, you know, kind of unlicensed product and, and walk into a, a, a licensed uh, retailer and, and buy that. And, and so much of that is about having the right products and the right brands on the shelf. Uh, and giving consumers a great, great experience. Um, so that that's really the opportunity in New York is to, you know, really capitalize on um, taking our fair share of that uh, $5 billion uh, market over the next, you know, two to three years. And by bodega, you mean food truck? <laughs> when I was out there in September, I think there was- Yeah, it could be anything. Trucks. Yeah, yeah. I think there's 30 food trucks that got- um, confiscated in September when I was out in New York there the last time. Um, what, what, in your opinion, Mark, what is it going to take for RIV and other cannabis stocks to move independently of the news and, and one another? There is no fundamentals. There isn't even technicals within the cannabis industry. What is that going to take for that to happen? Yeah, it's really challenging. I mean, I think you saw when there was just kind of the, the hope that safe banking would would come is, you know, a lot of folks were, uh, you, you saw that all the equities move uh, quite significantly, uh, both from a volume as well as a, um, as well as a, uh, you know, price perspective. Um, you know, and here we, here we sit and there's no kind of immediately immediate macro catalyst uh, that's going to kind of propel that, um, propel those stock prices forward on that basis. I think, uh, you know, my prediction for 2023 is I think we're going to see a lot of combinations. I think, you know, as I talk to other uh, operators, I think the thought is, you know, how do you build a bigger armada to weather the storm? Um, it's super fragmented industry, and there's a lot of uh, synergies that could be had by combining um, different organizations together to uh, really kind of, you know, allow people to operate as, as leanly as possible given the constrained capital environment that we sit in, given kind of the, the challenging um, equity situation that we're in, that people aren't going to want to issue a lot of equity uh, at these prices. Um, so I think, I think that's one of the things that, you know, all the operators that I've talked to are focused on is how do we kind of make moves today that are going to create long-term shareholder value, whether or not people realize it immediately. Right. And, and so I think that's, that that's kind of the key is, you know, a lot of folks are doing a lot of things that are, you know, either kind of streamlining their organizations, uh, exploring different, uh, you know, kind of combinations, all of which is to kind of make the company stronger. 
I don't know, to your point, given kind of technicals as well as people's kind of risk appetites, whether or not that's going to immediately get recognized. But I think once it does, I think you'll see kind of multiple expansion as well as, and I'm not putting a time frame on that, but you'd start to see multiple expansion and people really start to look at the fundamentals and, uh, you know, the earning power of these different businesses. So does part of that um, expansion include delivery? I was looking at a BDS analytics report that said Florida is the highest uh, delivery demand state at 23%. So at, you know, one in four people wanting uh, delivery, taking away from that retail experience, is that something that you're going to try to fight against that trend or incorporate? No, I think it's definitely something you incorporate. I mean, if you think about, you know, so cannabis is just a product, right? When you think about the way that consumers, yourself, others around you consume uh, uh, products today, it's so much of it is, you know, built around convenience. And so if you can kind of lean into that and, uh, you know, offer that convenience to the consumer that they can, uh, you know, get their products the way that they want when they want, I think that's, that's the way to win with consumers, right? You give them not only a great experience with the product, but you gave give them a great experience with you know how they get the product. Mm-hmm. You guys are uh, Etain is going to plan on developing, expanding new products and brands to try and resonate with that consumer in New York. Uh, can you elaborate? Um, being on the West Coast, uh, I was in New York. Um, it's really really new, so I don't really know what what that means. Can you elaborate on what resonates with New Yorkers right now and maybe what your expectations are on the overall New York market? I know you said $5 billion, That's going to match California. Maybe you can expand on that. Yeah. So, so I guess I'll say two things. One is, interestingly, if you go into um, if you go into a lot of the bodegas, the unlicensed uh, uh, shops where they sell cannabis in uh, in New York, you're going to find a lot of California brands and yeah. a lot of it is licensed California product. And we, that's, that's a, a discussion for another, another podcast of how that stuff makes its way there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, that, that kind of dovetails really well with kind of our initial hypothesis, which I probably talked about the last time is, you know, we, we kind of the first part of our, um, you know, kind of strategy is to have these kind of large limited licensed States, the other part is, you know, we want to partner with operators that have shown an ability to operate at scale and compete and win in high competition states. So, you know, California, Colorado, Michigan, right? Those are states where, you know, there's a lot of competition, uh, thousands of brands probably in, in California. So ones that have competed and won there, that says a lot because that's a, you know, really kind of a, a precursor to the way that you know, once all the walls come down, that's the way the, the, the market's going to operate is it's going to be, you know, kind of the best brands and products win. And so really the discussions we've been uh, having and we've talked about is, you know, working to bring some of those West Coast brands into New York. Uh, a lot of them are highly interested, uh, interested for the same reasons I talked about. There's a lot of folks, as well as when they think about trying to establish their brand uh, on a national scale, if you are competing and winning in California and then competing and winning in New York, uh, that goes a long way to establishing and saying that you're a national brand. Right. Um, So I think that's kind of one aspect. I think the other aspect is, um, you know, there are, you know, the E-team folks have a lot of great relationships with some of the 
uh, kind of legacy brands in New York, uh, not as big a scale as what, you know, folks operate at in California. Um, but I think there's, you know, discussions to be had um, with some of those brands as to whether or not they want to kind of come over to the license side. Um, and so I think that's a big opportunity for us uh, to to capitalize on kind of those legacy New York brands and, you know, being complementary to the, the larger, more established kind of West Coast brands. Any other predictions uh, for 2023? If, um, if there's no regulations, BDS Analytics said that California followed by Texas, Florida, and then New York would be the biggest states. Do um, you have any response to that or any other predictions for 2023? No, I mean, you know, that's, again, I think they're just, you know, if you count the number of people and, you know, what are the biggest states? You know, it's not hard to predict what are the biggest cannabis markets. Um, you know, I, I, I've, I recently read quite skeptically uh, Schumer talking about the fact that he thinks, you know, he could get safe banking done this year. I, I just don't know that they're going to make it a priority. So mm-hmm. uh, I think everybody's kind of been burned on that more than more than once. Uh, so I think it's a, a believe it when we see it type situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then again, beyond what I mentioned earlier about kind of seeing a lot of combinations, um, I, I think that's going to be really the uh, the theme for this year of uh, is consolidation. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, I think with that, we're going to have to roll this one up. So I want to thank my guest, Mark Sims, CEO of Riv Capital. You can find them uh, on the uh, Toronto Stock Exchange under Riv, as well as on the OTC under CNPOF. Where else can they find you at, Mark? Uh, you can find our website, rivcapital.com. Okay. Perfect. I think with that, um, that's it. We're going to roll this one up. I'm Josh Kincaid. This is The Talking Hedge. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, or don't. And I'm out. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season one of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at DopeHistory.com.